This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment. The conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. We often put classical music on a pedestal as if it is there only for us to admire and enjoy. But what if its other critical role is to be a keyhole to history? Or as Jeremy Eichler in his new book, Times Echo, calls a prism through which we remember what was lost, a gateway to empathy for those who came before, a means of excavating, recovering, and in some small way, redeeming older hopes and prayers. He explores this notion by contextualizing four classical pieces written by Arnold Schoenberg, Dmitry Shostakovich, Richard Strauss, and Benjamin Britten. These distinct pieces that responded to the Holocaust in World War II are representative of a broader notion, the music of remembrance. Eichler brings his experience as the chief classical music critic of the Boston Globe to the conversation. But most significantly, he brings his passion, respect for history, and an enthralling capacity for narrative to deliver a book that is likely to make us keenly aware that music is delivering something powerful yet untranslatable. Jeremy, welcome to Just the Right Book. Thanks so much for having me. So I was mesmerized reading this book, and I think it was because you brought together history and music and personal stories in the way that almost made it read at the pace of fiction, which is you know, for somebody like me who reads a lot of nonfiction, always a fun way to learn so much. But what I'd like to do is begin our conversation by asking you to share with us the significance of the performance of Mendelssohn's Elijah on March 9th, 1937, at the glorious Neo-Moorish New Synagogue at the center of Berlin. There's an audience there of thousands. And they are unwittingly or wittingly bearing witness to the wrenching apart of the German-Jewish symbiosis that had thrived in 19th century Germany. Jeremy, tell us about that performance. That's a great place to start. And I think that the, the book, I'd have to say that the book tries to really pull back the camera in there are many books. There's a rich literature out there, of course, on this era in history. And I think that in many accounts of what was lost tend to begin perhaps in the interwar period or just, you know, shortly before the rise of the Third Reich. In this book, I really tried to tell a longer story that in some senses culminates in the scene that you're describing. And that longer story begins in the 18th century with Moses Mendelssohn, Felix Mendelssohn, the composer's grandfather, uh, entering the gates of Berlin and through his own work and learning and writing, ushering in 
the Jewish Enlightenment, and in some senses, also the German Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. And so one of the themes that the book, one of the things I really wanted to do was to spend time describing and in some ways honoring the incredible achievements that were also part of German Jewish history and that I feel get completely lost when we tell these stories exclusively in the key of loss. And when we when we look back at that history through the prism of what came afterwards. So the first part of the book tries to tell the story of the German Jewish symbiosis in all its glory. And then of course we get to the parts of the story where that starts to pull apart. And the performance that you're mentioning took place at a time when the German Jews living in Berlin were becoming aware that actually any final remnants of hope that they had for a life of dignity, that anything that was any hope they had that this was actually not leading to some very dark place, those hopes had it by that point been erased. This was a performance that very powerfully took place in the ultimate symbol of their earlier hopes mm. and dreams for acceptance as equals in German society. This synagogue was stupendous. It was bombed during the war, so we don't know today. We can't go visit it, though the facade still exists. But when you look at photos, this was a this was an enormous synagogue that kind of um, that represented all of the German Jewry's dreams for attaining this place of dignity within the broader German society. And here they were packing into this synagogue for this performance of music by Mendelssohn, who himself, that composer's reputation had gone on a tremendous journey that the book also traces. And, you know, I found it just, most historians find musical performances, it's sort of the ultimate ephemeral moment, right? It's mm-hmm. it's there for those people and then it's gone. But this was really just seemed like an extraordinary performance on its own terms. And for the response of the audience, who, as we were, to- as we're told from one account, there was just quiet after the piece ended, punctuated by this sort of, um, I think the account says, vainly suppressed weeping. And mm. it's just a moment that it cap- seemed to capture, especially when you just imagine these thousands of people then filing out into the Berlin night. And one of the things that you do in the book, which I was not familiar with, and I'm not sure I'm even pronouncing it correctly, but the notion of building, is that how you say that? Bildung. Bildung, which I had not quite understood that concept and the and the kind of hold that had on people like Mendelssohn and other contemporary composers, artists, and German Jews. So explain to us what that is and the grip that that had on everyone. Yeah, so this is a concept that there's no, I would use the, the word in English, but there's no direct translation. But I think it actually is a concept that we're all familiar with, possibly under different names. But it, it's really this, that grows out of this kind of enlightenment vision that that culture, that art, music, uh, poetry, that kind of immersion in, in in these in these art forms can somehow renovate the soul, kind of elevate us as human beings, can somehow lead us on further on the path toward a life of aesthetic grace and and wisdom, perhaps. And, you know, these are older European ideals. And the book tells the story of, in some ways, the, the invention of those ideals, but also 
it traces their their powerful eclipse during the war. But the the invention of them is itself a, a story that is itself very poignant because, of course, German Jews were particularly attached to this idea because it was going to be sort of on the wings of culture and on the wings of this Bildung ideal that they were going to take their place, you know, as equals in German society. So, you know, you have all these, you know, stories of 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 German Jewish boys at their bar mitzvah receiving complete volumes of Goethe, uh, complete sets, mm-hmm. and 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 of Jewish families changing their last name to Schiller. It was just this kind of it was this sense of a transference, almost of a religious zeal away from older religious models and towards this embrace of German high culture. And it was going to sort of set everyone free and lead them to a better life. And of course, in the end, the German Jews were some of those sort of the, that concept was warped and weaponized over the course of the 19th century. And the German Jews were were some of those who were sort of left standing, holding the bag, if you will, and defending this ideal once it had been abandoned, after it had been abandoned by many of their countrymen. Yeah. And two things came to mind, Jeremy, when I was reading about this. One is the kind of irony. So when this performance was done, Jews couldn't listen to Bach or Beethoven, this moment where Mendelssohn, who actually had converted, and the irony of trying to extricate Jews from German culture, because it was it was at this point, after what was merely a hundred years, so fully enmeshed, Jews were so assimilated and honored and revered that what was going on would certainly not happen to the German Jews. Yes, definitely. There there was a sense of deep integration. There was a sense that Germans and Jews had really partnered in the creation of modern German culture. And so, you know, the book tells the story of the destruction of a giant statue that was erected in front of the big Leipzig concert hall, the Leipzig Gewandhaus. And this was a statue of Mendelssohn, and it was toppled during the night by Nazi sympathizers and by, you know, by Nazi officials. And, you know, it was it kind of, there's this contrast here where you could, you could knock over statues like that and haul them away under cover of darkness, but it proved much more difficult and actually impossible to separate out the strands of German and Jewish influence on German culture. Uh, you know, in, in, in exemplary of that problem is the fact that the German public loved Mendelssohn's Overture to Midsummer Night's Dream, his Shakespeare music. Right. <laughs> so much so, so much so that they wouldn't do without it. And and Hitler's government tried to commission, you know, good Aryan composers to to replace that with their own music. And none of their experiments worked. They had to just continue playing Mendelssohn, but they took his name off of the programs. So, you know, there there's just there are so many layers to the story and um and 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 music for me, gave me one one way of 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 telling telling that story. Mm, so let's go to our first composer, Arnold Schoenberg's "Survivor from Warsaw." Was among the very first significant pieces to memorialize the attempted extermination of European Jewry. Having been composed in 1947, the public still really didn't fully grasp the the breadth and horror of the Holocaust and weren't even sure how music or art should respond. I think you bring up Adorno's quote, 
that to write poetry after Auschwitz would be barbaric. Yet, as you say, Schoenberg's atonal music probably presented the ideal vessel to reveal the horror and suffering of the Holocaust. So what was Schoenberg's journey to this creation? And then how on earth did this astounding piece of work by the renowned Schoenberg come to premiere in the most unlikely of places? Yes, it's an incredible story. And so we're we're jumping ahead from where we were a minute ago. So to bring our listeners with us, Schoenberg is the first of the four composers whose story I, I tell in the book. It's Schoenberg, Strauss, Shostakovich, and Britain, as you mentioned. And so Schoenberg was was born into an Austrian Jewish family in 1874. And he absolutely was a, a, a perfect kind of a poster child of someone who, of, of a Jew who grew up um, kind of intoxicated by these Bildung ideals and convinced that he himself actually could lead German music into its you know, what he thought of as its atonal promised land, you know, and uh, he converted in, 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 near the end of the, of the century, he converted to Lutheranism, this idea that, you know, his Jewish roots were this kind of relics of a persecuted past that, you know, what, what would be the point of holding on to them? And he just kept going with his, with his own work and his kind of revolution in, in, in German music, liberating dissonance as he as he put it, he called it the emancipation of dissonance and in creating this atonal and eventually 12-tone music. What happened was that in the 1920s, he, like so many other Jews, realized that whether they saw themselves as Jews or not didn't really matter and that that identity was going to be thrust upon them, you know, violently in some cases. And so Schoenberg actually had this sort of dramatic re-embrace of a, of a militant political identity as a Jew, even as he continued trying to carry the torch forward of German culture. So it was this kind of time of these wrenching tensions in, in his life and in his art. In 1933, he became one of the very first artists to leave Germany. He seemed to be very prescient uh, about the threat that European Jewry was facing. And from his position in exile in Los Angeles, he spent a bunch of years in the late 1930s trying to sort of shock the world awake and 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 wake up the European Jews to what he saw with uncanny clarity as their sort of their imminent threat and in some senses their imminent doom. And he was writing these incredibly prescient pieces of of uh, political writing that he ultimately could not get published. Um, and and mm-hmm. so there's a there's a kind of there's a poignancy in that story as well. After the war looking out at a world and looking and seeing the losses in his own family, essentially that the, exactly the vision, exactly that the tragedy he had sought to forestall through his own political activism had come to pass. He had basically spectacularly failed as a political leader. He returned to his focus to the domain where his own kind of mastery was in some senses uncompromised and and unimpeachable, which was his his art. And he became one of the very first composers to memorialize the Holocaust in music. That was this seven-minute piece called The Survivor from Warsaw. So 
essentially it was so far ahead of the curve. It features a narrator who describes in very plain language a scene that takes place in an extermination camp. So there was no hiding this work's message behind music's veils of abstraction. This really spoke very clearly about what it was about. And there was reference to things like the gas chambers, which in 1947 was unheard of. This was before there was a single built memorial to uh, in anywhere in the U.S. to the Holocaust. And, you know, it's almost hard for us to remember Roxanne today because we're, we're many of us live in these kinds of memory saturated environments. You know, we've all seen Schindler's List and think that mm-hmm. we know about this era. But back then, nobody wanted to talk about these periods. Elie Wiesel's Night could not find a publisher. Primo Levi's work could not find a publisher. And Arnold Schoenberg's early musical memorial could not find an orchestra that would perform it. It was commissioned in Boston by, by the music director of the Boston Symphony, who almost always commis- uh, performed the works he commissioned but with his own orchestra. This is Serge Gusevitsky. He didn't, it seems, did not want to touch this piece. Mm-hmm. So the world premiere ultimately fell to a Viennese Jewish violinist and conductor named Kurt Frederick, sort of a minor figure that history is all but forgotten. But he was living in Albuquerque and kind of stumbled into this premiere. He gave the world premiere with his amateur orchestra in a university gymnasium in Albuquerque, New Mexico, with cowboys singing in the chorus. Mm. And Jeremy, what was the reaction outside that auditorium at that point? Because 1947, as you say, you know, we didn't exactly in this country open the floodgates until the Truman Act in December of 45, and the first refugees began to come to the U.S. in 46. Anti-Semitism was sitting pretty significantly still in the United States, So what was the U.S. reaction? What was the reaction in Europe to the composition? Yeah, so just to take a step back for one sec, Roxanne, one of the reasons, one of the one of the ideas behind this book is that these 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 world these world premieres of these musical memorials they're extraordinary works on their own terms but each of the world premieres of these different pieces i write about also opens up these fascinating windows onto what we could call the social history of memory you know mm. how memory changed over time how these different countries and different different segments within the same societies were were thinking about and telling the story of of what had just happened so with Survivor from Warsaw, everywhere it went, strange things seemed to happen in those early years. I mean, just the fact that it was premiered in a sweat-soaked university gymnasium, you know, this is a work <laughs> by, by, the, by, by the great founder of European modernism. You know, all the national uh, journals sent correspondence, you know, the Times read, ran headlines, Schoenberg and Albuquerque, like the punchline to a joke or something like that, you know, and um, I think I write, you know, it's like a Zacher tort at a rodeo. It was just these two things. <laughs> Don't, somehow don't don't mesh. In, that doesn't in, go right. So so you know, I think that the work was the work. It seems was met in some sense in some in some in some corridor, corridors with just complete incomprehension. You know, the first reviewer of the Albuquerque Journal who re- reviewed the work uh, at its world premiere. You know. I should say, after the narrator describes the scene, going back to the piece, the narrator describes the scene of Jews being woken up, rounded up, 
beaten and then sent to the gas chambers. And at the kind of climax of his narrative, the Jewish prisoners rise up and sing in unison Schoenberg's own 12-tone setting of the Shema Yisrael prayer, the central mm-hmm. prayer of Judaism. So, so it's, and, and that's set in Hebrew. But despite all of that, the Albuquerque Journal reviewer of the world premiere refers in describing the piece refers to the prisoners as Poles, not as Jews. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and so there was, there was this, there was this kind of confusion, sometimes purposeful elision of the identity yeah. of of the particularization of the genocide itself as something that targeted Jews and others, of course, as a group. Um, you know, this, this was a, there was a really kind of a chaos of memory in these early years, and everywhere that piece went, it seemed to kind of sort of prick the surface of that chaos and, and unleash all kinds of strange reactions, including in Germany after the in the early years, where there were so many Nazis who had returned to civil life, sort of unreconstructed, and in some senses you know, un- unrepentant. And, and you know, the, so this piece was attacked in West Germany and, and accused of being a kind of obscenity. And that was literally the word that was used because it was performed alongside Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. So, you know, this, it's, it was an, a really fascinating controversies that tell us a lot about music's ability to really touch these nerves quite central to society. Yeah. And speaking of controversy, the other composer and piece, I want to make sure that we get to, we might not get to all four, although we'll try. But speaking of controversy, we have Richard Strauss, whose piece that you discuss is Metamorphosin. Is that pronounced right? Uh, Metamorphosin. Metamorphosin. Thank you. So that presents a more ambiguous message, given Strauss's willingness to work with the Nazis while Actually, on the backs of other illustrious Jewish composers who not only lost their positions, but they lost their standing, in some cases, their life. And this piece ends with the words in memoriam. And does that give us an answer from Strauss? Does that give us an apology? Is he trying to make room for the fact that he was naive about the Nazis' objective? Did it speak to his capacity to compartmentalize? I mean, what the hell was the story with this guy? Yes, Strauss is a, <laughs> a really, a really complicated figure. And he was by far the hardest of the four to write about um, for me. And and also that that his work metamorphosin was the hardest of the memorials to really get my mind around sort of how what we should make of this music today it also happens to be by far the most frequently performed of all the works i discuss in in the mm. book primary musical memorials because full stop it's a, it's an extraordinarily beautiful mm. of 20th century music it's it's for string orchestra and you know it's um there are no words to it, which gets, which is the beginning of the story of this work's ambiguity, because, you know, it was actually Schoenberg who said, thanks to those properties you were discussing in the introduction to our conversation, music's ability to kind of speak profoundly without, without divulging a message that's translatable, that's kind of specific to, in the way that language is specific. Schoenberg, of all people, I think was he who said that only in music can you Confess your heart while keeping your secrets. Mm, I love that. I, you know, I wrote that down, Jeremy, because I thought that was such an exquisite depiction 
of what you talk about in the book about the role that music can play. So say that again so our listeners can really register those words. Yeah, I don't have this direct quote in front of me, but it was along the lines that only in music can you confess your heart while keeping your secrets. Mm. And in in a sense, that's really, uh, I think, a, a helpful gloss for understanding or thinking about this piece by Strauss because it's a work of abstract music. And so there are no words. And it's, but yet it seems very clearly to have a kind of confessional, kind of a mournful air. And it was written at a point in, in 1944 where I think it's safe to say Strauss was in a very dark place, having realized his, his naivete and trying to strike up a kind of relation, a partnership of opportunity in the early years of the Nazi regime. You know, he was, he was not a, virulent anti-Semite in the way that that many, obviously many Nazis were. He was never a member of the Nazi party, but he did have that early collaboration and accepted appointments in the, in the party machinery. Uh, he, he was the president of the Reich Chamber of Music, but he had Jewish family members because his son married a, a Czech Jewish woman. And so his daughter-in-law and technically under Nazi race law, his grandchildren were Jews. So he became, he didn't leave the country and he spent the years of the Third Reich as the war progressed and increasingly kind of feeling like he was in a, a, a profound bind because he wanted to keep his family members safe and to do so kept calling in favors and needing to continue to kind of curry favor with these senior Nazi officials. So it's all, it's very hard to read about. It's very hard, hard to get one's mind around. Also what we should do with this music. So Strauss leaves behind in the score, not in the music, but he writes in the score, what you say in memoriam, but he never says, what are we supposed to be memorializing? And so that question, since this piece was premiered, that question has been, is, is kind of raised again at every performance, if only implicitly. And, you know, the book takes a position that in a way, it's really no longer his to answer. It's not mm-hmm. his question to answer anymore. We get a say now. And that gets at how the book tries to approach this whole question of musical meaning. Does the, does the work's meaning come from the composer? Does it come from us? Is it all just our projection? Or is it somehow in a relationship between the two? Maybe even meaning is triangulated each in each performance anew through the coordinates of the composer, the performer, and the listener. But I wanted to basically empower us as listeners today to understand the history of this music, but also the history around this music. What I try to do with Strauss's Metamorphosen is essentially inscribe it, if you will, inscribe its story with some adjacent stories of of some of the victims of Hitler's Reich that Strauss, to whose suffering Strauss in his lifetime seemed all too impervious. So I tell the Mm -hmm. story of his Jewish neighbors. He professed to really not know what was going on. Meanwhile, his neighbors, this particular amazing couple, Michael and Emmy Schnabel, you know, the two people whose names and lives were completely lost to history. Nobody knows who they were, but they were expelled from, they lived a mile away from Strauss. They were expelled. He was a, he was a papyrus researcher an expert in ancient Egyptology. She was a great lover of German literature and they were forced out of their town and ultimately had to flee Germany. When they returned back at the border, they committed suicide saying Mm -hmm. that it was better to die in the fatherland than to flee into exile. So that's, and these stories are just, are, are, are so 
powerful and, and, and memorable. And my thought was, you know, if we attach the story of people like the Schnabels to the story of metamorphosis, and for me at least now, I can't hear one without thinking of the other. The book is also a kind of experiment in how we live with this past and how art can be part of a kind of usable past, if you will, that these works can be asked to carry forward all sorts of things and that they're, in fact, quite capable of doing so. Jeremy, one of the things I I was curious about, you know, you say his Strauss's piece is performed more than the other three uh, that are in the book. Do you attach any meaning to that? Is Does that speak to the beauty of that piece or the safety of that music as opposed to Bobby R or Britain's position, activism on pacifism, or obviously survivor of Warsaw? Mm. That's a really beautiful way of posing the question. I, I, I do think that there is something that the work in some ways gets to, um, thanks to these amazing qualities of music, the work gets to sort of, it gets to have its cake and eat it too. Because, you know, it, there's, there is clearly this, this profound sense of a, a life moment that the, that the work emerges from. It is profoundly expressive music. It's trying to say something, but yet again, it gets to sort of, seal its message and and the complications around its message, the moral complications behind or sort of beneath its veil of wordless beauty. And so it, it's it's a piece that we can, as you say, approach in these less complicated ways and just appreciate as music. And if there's nothing wrong with that, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to prescribe one mm-hmm. way of listening. You know, I'm really, the book is really an attempt to ask how might we think about music and the past differently if we kind of try on this idea of music as culture's memory. Jeremy, the other thing that I was struck by is, you know, given the preponderance of German esteemed composers. Is there something about the German culture that was, that presented a unique ferment for music? Because, you know, as I was reading the book and then I'm looking up like when was Bach born and when was Beethoven born and where were they born and that I realized, my God, there are a lot of, you know, the, the, you know, Mozart, I think was born in Austria, not or what's now Austria, not Germany. But was there something about the German culture that particularly created this environment? Uh, yes, yes. In short, yes. The I, I think that it's it's that's a great question. There are there are entire books sort of written to address that really fascinating, important question. Um, I would say in, in a nutshell, and and by the way, the book has, my book has a lot of original research in it, but it also stands on the shoulder of a mm. lot of work by, by specialist scholars in these different disciplines, and it could not have been written without that. So as some of those historians of German music tell us, tell, help us understand the story, 
We have to remember, Roxanne, that until 1871, there was no Germany to speak of as a political country. As a polit- It was not a unified country. It was just a kind of loose confederation of individual states and um, with, with, with no political center. And beginning at the early years of the 19th century, there was this movement that to kind of to change that, to, to unify this kind of vision that it could become a unified country. But before that were to happen politically, the country had to feel like a, like a totality. It needed some kind of binding agent, if you will, some, some way to feel, feel unified as Germans and sort of there lying in wait for its moment of perfect utility was the idea of German music. You know, German music isn't just a thing. It's also an invention. It's a concept that was created at the beginning of the 19th century as kind of as a way of, of paving the path towards German nationhood. And so I think that you just have this intertwining of a, of a political and cultural narrative from, from very early on that I think ultimately is part of why German music becomes so, so dominant in the cultural imagination. You know, it's been said, it's been observed that mm. when we talk about any other country's composers, people refer to, oh, so-and-so is an American composer. So-and-so is a Russian composer. So-and-so is a French composer. It's only Germans who get to be just called, oh, that's a, he's a composer or she's a composer. It's sort of like music is um, natural to the German world. And, and, but that, that sense of naturalness is of course itself an invention. And the book explores that. The other thing that I was curious about, and I don't know that much about classical music, so I loved learning as much as I did reading the book, but the compositions that you talk about present a distinct narrative. And as I said at the, at the intro, that often I or, or many others think of classical music as, you know, sort of this more refined on a pedestal kind of a music. To me, in these, at least let's leave out Strauss's piece for a minute, the Bobby R. piece, the Survivor of Warsaw, uh, Britain's piece, very distinctly tell a story. And so the question is, was 19th century classical music also intending to tell a story, aside from opera? The short answer, again, is yes to a really profound question. I mean, there's a distinction that, you know, historians of 19th century music make between program, what gets called program music and absolute music. Program music is refers to kind of works that it's very specifically, you know, tell you a kind of a story and sound, you know, and, and Strauss wrote some tone poems that kind of have these characters that sort of very specifically go through and almost it's the music's almost cinematically depicts what, um, you know, the, these, these stories, but then also the 19th century saw the kind of the birth of, of, um, these ideas about absolute, absolute music, the other kind, which, which it was, the sense was that actually this was music whose, whose message was somehow not connected to the external world and these stories that, that might be told about it and characters 
going through their lives and doing heroic things or whatever the case, but actually that music was the ultimate romantic art that could bring us inward in touch with these inner states of meaning, these kind of soul states, these, these, these languages that were beyond the reach of language itself. And, and so that becomes another way that, that 19th century artists thought about what they were doing. And in some ways, it was, it was because he was drawing on that inheritance and that tradition that Richard Strauss was able to tell himself it was okay to work by day, mm-hmm. not for the Nazi party. And then by night, I, I talk about how he co- continued collaborating with the Jewish librettist, which was sort of completely bonkers for the time, right? But, but in, in his mind, it made sense in a way because there was this division between culture and politics in, in, in the 19th century German imagination. But obviously history bears out the fact that that, that distinction was really just a kind of um, completely fiction and that the, the two could not be really separated. Talking about the intersection of culture and politics, I was very struck by the contemporary aspect in Freud's essay written in 1915 uh, that you referred to that, that addressed the question of what to do with the ideals that got shattered by World War One, And you know, when you talk about history, music is memory. I, I, I want to connect these two. So you talk about Beethoven's Ode to Joy. And should we think that that didn't deserve to be an Ode to Joy because of what came after? Or as Freud talks about in this essay, does it remind us, does that Ode to Joy or music like that remind us of the constant demand for diligence to preserve hope even as ideals seem shattered. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for, for asking about that. And, you know, the, those questions are sort of what I take up in, in what I call the coda to the book, where I sort of try to take a step back and ask, you know, the, the book is, as your as your listeners are hearing, and as you already know, it kind of weaves this immense, tap, this vast tapestry of stories. There's just a lot of stories. And the book tries to explore these, these bigger ideas about the possibility of music, its relationship to memory through the prism of these stories. And, and so, but in the code, I take a step back and ask, you know, what, what does this all leave us with? And, you know, one of the questions exactly as you articulate is sort of should Beethoven's Ninth Symphony sound the same before and after Auschwitz? Right? That was a rupture. One philosopher put it, the Holocaust as a rupture in the deep layer of solidarity among all who wear a human face. Mm. And that, that idea, and, and Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, of course, was the celebration of exactly that solidarity. So, so how are we to hear this music after history in some sense has called the lie to its vision or its hope? And, you know, I, I wanted to ask that question in part because classical music seems to love this idea of the timeless masterpiece. We talk a lot about timeless masterpiece mm-hmm. in the classical world. And when you call something timeless, what it does in a way is it takes it at right out of history. And so, you know, I, I ended up turning to some ideas that I, you know, that I found beautifully expressed in the writing of the survivor Paul Salon, who writes about how poetry or art in general 
travels through time to reach us, works of art in the past. But through time really means going through it, not above it or around Mm -hmm. it or besides it. And that a work of art like Beethoven's Ninth can't make that journey unscathed. We have to somehow hear that history at the same time as we still hear the hopes and dreams expressed in that music. If we don't hear both in some ways, then it's really maybe tantamount to reducing Beethoven's incredible vision, Schiller's incredible vision of that ode to joy to a kind of freedom kitsch, right? A completely, completely divorced from history or in some senses from meaning. And and so I wanted to to recover or just think about the, those those different ways of hearing the past through its music. You mentioned the Freud essay. That was the other piece of it. I, I wanted really to, you know, Freud asks this question that I think we're all at, we we all ask it when we get to the end of any book on the Holocaust or World War One or sort of how can the world go on after this sort of these sort of this abyss these this these kind of orgies of barbarism what are we what are we to make of it all and Freud asks you know is this does this really prove the lie to all of our higher ideals that 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 humankind is nurtured through the centuries and what he says exactly as you point out is that. No, it doesn't call the lie to those ideals. It just says that none of them can be taken for granted mm-hmm. and that societies have to choose these the, the paths of these higher ideals consciously, vigilantly at, at every turn. And, you know, so I, I really wanted this history to be meaningful for us in the present, both in the terms of how we think about our society today and how we think about our own relationship to the past. Mm. So, Jeremy, you know, I couldn't help but have a visceral reaction to Alma Rose's story, which I'm going to have you share with us, because, you know, I have firsthand experience. My uh, mother got off a cattle car in Auschwitz with her family only to hear music. There was, you know four or five musicians playing music. And my mother would describe for decades the talk about dissonance, like, okay, maybe things are not as awful as we think because they're playing music. And on the other hand, it presented a false hope of what was going to happen. And my mother for, you know, the 50 or 60 years that she lived after the war, always carried that dichotomy with her and always carried that dichotomy about music. And she was not educated. My mother was not an educated woman. She did not have a particular understanding of classical music. But when you talk about the role that music plays in our experiencing time personally and how we use it to understand history, that, you know, that notion, which is epitomized in Alma Rose, which I'd like you, before I ask the last question, to share her story and how she ended up in this orchestra at Auschwitz. Yes. Thank you, by the way, just for for sharing your mother's story, which I, uh, of course, hadn't known about. the The story of Alma Rose is that she was the daughter of, she was sort of 
born into musical royalty or a family of musical royalty. Her father was the concert master of the Vienna Philharmonic for over five decades, which is an extraordinary reign. He was kind of the kind of this icon of musical integrity and in a sense, kind of the final fruit of the Bildung ideal in a, in a way. And, and, and he absolutely had these, these beliefs, which now seem perhaps old fashioned in, in the kind of ennobling power of art. But, he, and he, he married the sister. This is he, Arnold Rose, Alma's father, married the sister of the composer Gustav Mahler. So these families were all very closely knit right at the kind of epicenter of Austro-German music. But the Rosé family was was Jewish. Alma Rosé ultimately, like her father, pursued a career as a violinist. She found her success not as her father did in ensembles like the Vienna Philharmonic, but she had what we might call today a pops orchestra that played light classics, if you will, um, and, and very successfully in cafes and different venues, you know, all all through Europe. And and she pursued that career into into the 1930s. Her father, when the Nazis invaded Austria on the Anschluss, her father was summarily dismissed from his position that he had held with this kind of unimpeachable dignity for over five decades and sent, you know, summarily into exile. He went, he fled to London with Alma's help. But once she established him there, she tried to continue her career performing around Europe. And she ultimately fell into the hands of the Gestapo and was sent to Auschwitz, where she became the conductor of this women's orchestra in Auschwitz. And I found it incredibly powerful the way in a sense that that orchestra saved the lives of many of its members because Alma held them to such a high stand musical standards that even though they were playing on these broken instruments with you know in on these unimaginable conditions very often not having learned their instruments particularly well in the first place Alma sort of by sheer force of personality and discipline kind of created the, this ensemble that could could play we're told at, at a at a significantly high level at least high enough that the camp officials wanted it to continue and so so the the the, the players in her orchestra many of them survived where they would not have otherwise so in a sense this vision of artistic integrity that was part of the building ideal, Alma Rose carried it all the way into the heart of the inferno and ultimately used it to save the lives of of her fellow musicians she herself could was was not saved she died in the in the camp of auschwitz mm. we don't know exactly from from what perhaps disease perhaps suicide mm. jeremy in the like two minutes that we have left and i feel badly that we've short shifted shostakovich and and britain but i hope this conversation will have enticed our listeners to uh, pick up the book because we've covered, you know, uh, the tip of the breadth of what you've covered. So, you know, hopefully everyone will do that. But l let me ask this as a last question. These four composers come from such different perspectives and experiences. You know, we picked two. Uh, that we talked about a little bit more extensively and their differences are quite obvious. Yet you bring them together for envisioning music as a form of history. And 
each of their pieces are powerful in depicting pain and suffering, each in quite a different way. How did you decide to pick these composers and these pieces to talk about music as a form of history? Yes. So before I ask that, first of all, thank you again for having me, you know, on the podcast, Roxanne. It's really, it's a very a meaningful conversation for me. I, I wanted to just add that we've gone, we've, because you've been asking such probing questions, we've done some deep dives into music history. And, <laughs> and, and, and I, I, I just felt, I feel compelled to, to mention to your readers that it is a book that for people who are already inside that world and know that they love classical music or know that they're deeply fascinated by the history of that, this era, I hope there are still some, you know, interesting or fresh insights, things that they'll find that they'll be glad to have discovered. But the book is not only written for people who, um, who care or know that they care a lot about classical music or about this history. It's really, it's really written for a much broader audience who might feel um, well. That would be me. The... Yes, <laughs> that would yeah, be me. Yeah. I don't know. And I, I really came to it with such little understanding of music, maybe of history, particularly of this time, but not the music. So, and I found it very compelling, and d- did not feel short shrifted by my lack of understanding or knowledge about classical music. In fact, I was informed. Yeah, well, I'm glad, I'm really glad to hear that. That's that's certainly the hope. And, you know, the, the frame for all these stories are these questions about, you know, what is it, what, you know, at this moment that the living memory of that era is receding, you know, the generation that survived that time, people like your mother are fewer and fewer among us. Um, you know, how can art in general and music in these special mm. ways in particular act as a kind of bridge back to the past and a sort of repository of this still living cultural memory? So that that's the, you know, so it's, if, if you find that question, <laughs> in, you know, intriguing or, or interesting, that's, that's, um, that's that's kind of the, what the book is trying to get at, and it does it through these stories about about from the world of of music and the worlds of history. I want to answer your question as best I can about if if we're not out of time. So the Second World War and the Holocaust were, of course, um, these kind of global events. The Second World War, especially with the whole theater in the Far East, of course, the 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 Holocaust mostly played out on the continent of Europe. I wanted to choose a quartet, if you will, of composers who could help tell that story from very, very different perspectives. I, I describe them in one point in the book as standing at four different windows, you know, looking out onto the same catastrophe. So they 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 each had completely different perspectives. Their music opens up completely different perspectives on this past and not just in individual terms, but also these national terms, you know, so being able to write about Shostakovich's Bobby Yar symphony gave me a chance to write about the war and the war memory from the Soviet mm-hmm. perspective. Writing about Britain's war requiem allowed me to take up the English narrative. Um, Strauss's story allowed me to explore these questions from inside of German culture. And Schoenberg's story, of course, allowed the viewpoint of a German Jew who thought he was inside this culture and then ultimately ended up very much outside of it, writing from exile. Mm -hmm. So there was that 
that desire to have a range of perspectives. And then I also, the pieces I write about also are each these kind of central, they're, they're in some ways the best known musical memorials. And I have so much respect for books that are about music that we, that very few people know of yet. I wanted to write books that kind of took these questions I'm asking to the, the main, the sort of central line of, of, of 20th century music and, and sort of asked how these historical events kind of haunt the past of classical music and, and these, these works because I needed works that had premieres that opened up these broader windows onto their society. And so in, in, in many ways, choosing these particular works allowed me to tell the stories I hoped to share with readers. So, mm. Well, Jeremy, thank you on multiple levels. One, thank you for taking the time to be in conversation. Thank you for taking this approach to the intersection of music and history, because I think it certainly opened my mind to think about it all differently, made me want to learn more about music and think about music from other historical significant moments. And at the end of the day, I am a reader. And as I said in the introduction, it's a pretty enthralling narrative that you have put together. So thank you for that as well. Thanks so much, Roxanne, for taking the time first just to have me on the program, but then also just to clearly have spent the time that you did with the kind of open mind that you approached the book with. I, I really appreciate it. Great. Thanks so much, Jeremy. Thanks, Roxanne. Just the Right Book is not just a podcast. JustTheRightBook.com is a highly personalized book subscription service. It's good for readers of all ages. We have decades and decades of bookselling experience at RJ Julia's, and they're the ones who are selecting these books. Here's what happens. We get tons and tons of letters. We've been around for over 10 years, and the letters always are a version of this. I can't believe you picked out this book. I would have never picked it out. And guess what? It was just the right book. So visit justtherightbook.com for details and begin your subscription today. Of course, we have a promo code for you. So if you go to justtherightbook.com, use the promo code podcast, and you will get 15% off on your subscription at justtherightbook.com. You are listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Gino Cardone at Pleasant Podcast. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcast. I am Roxanne Cody. Thank you so much for listening. And if you have any comments, observations, suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. You can email me at justtherightbook at rjjulia.com.